Connecting with federal government decision makers is an important part of rural hospital advocacy efforts, but without a Washington, D.C. base, it's not easy to cultivate those relationships. So, how do rural hospitals stay connected to the leaders serving our communities at the national level? With an ear to the ground, a laser focus, and a partner who is fighting for them in Washington, D.C. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm J.J. Hodshire. And this is Rural Health Rising. Welcome to Episode 64 of Rural Health Rising. I'm J.J. Hodshire, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hillsdale Hospital. And I'm Rachel Lott, Director of Marketing and Development. So, Rachel, you know, we talk a lot about uh, the federal government on on this podcast. A lot. And I thought it was just every now and then. No, I think that's it all turns into <laughs> everything. Every road leads to the federal government, right? <laughs> um, but, but primarily when it comes to specific legislation or regulation, and we know that we're a highly regulated industry. Right. Uh, I think they said it's taxi cab drivers and then hospitals uh, <laughs> that are regulated. So, um, you know, but but for, for the purpose of today, we're going to dig into a relationship building um, and, and a relationship that we have about how rural hospitals can position themselves to successfully make their voice heard in Washington, D.C. That's right. And today we're talking with someone who does that every day, often on behalf of rural hospitals. Our guest today is a new good friend of mine, uh, Mark McIntyre, principal and co-founder of Merchant McIntyre and Associates, located in Washington, D.C. So welcome to Rural Health Rising, Mark. Thank you, JJ. I'm really pleased to be here with you and Rachel. Let's roll. So to start, Mark, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your work at Merchant McIntyre? Absolutely. Well, I will try to make a long story short. I actually grew up in rural America, uh, in upstate New York between Rochester and Buffalo, and I moved to Washington, D.C. soon after college. I've lived and worked in our nation's capital now for uh, 37 years. I've worked in the Congress in the White House and in the private sector, representing rural hospitals and other nonprofit institutions and organizations now for many years. And, you know, recently I had lunch with a friend and after we ordered our food, I said, I said, remind me, Steve, why did you come to Washington? And he looked at me and he said, well, the same reason you did, Mark. I said, really, why? He said, didn't you want to change the world? And so that's really it uh, in a nutshell. I came to D.C. to contribute to our great participatory democracy. And I honestly can still remember the day, July 23rd, 1985, as I rode the escalator up at the Capitol South Metro stop. I saw the sunshine glittering off of Lady Freedom on top of the U.S. Capitol building. And I thought, Dorothy, you're not in Kansas anymore. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Isn't that amazing? And you've had just a vast amount of experience in D.C. I, I know you're being very modest uh, for your introduction and for this podcast, but truly, you've spent a tremendous amount of your time working in different capacities in, in government, as you just shared with us. But can you give us a little more in-depth for our listeners in terms of what types of, uh, you know, what, what types of jobs did you have in those industries? Yeah. So on Capitol Hill, uh, I worked as a press secretary for a member of Congress from Louisiana. And I did that for a couple I did that for a couple of years. And then I went to the White House as the, believe it or not, as the chief speechwriter for 
George Herbert Walker Bush, so what we say in D.C. is Bush 41, yeah. primarily, primarily when he was vice president. So I started with him at the very end of 1986. Uh, we were right in the middle of a little crisis called the Iran-Contra affair. Mm. Uh, we, I was with, I w- yeah, there you go. I was with him uh, through the campaign, through the transition, through the inauguration. And then honestly, uh, soon after he wa- became president in January of uh, 1989, I was offered a position at a government relations firm that represented nonprofits with the focus on higher education. Hmm. My dad is a, for 34 years, was a professor at a university. And so I felt called to leave the White House a lot earlier than I expected. And I joined that agency. And that's how I started my career in government relations. That's incredible. And just one follow-up question to that. When you were working for 41, you didn't coin the phrase, wouldn't be prudent, did you? I I did not. And And I also said, I also didn't come up with the phrase, no new taxes. (laughs) <laughs> okay, I just uh, I, I was just like, wanted... man, you didn't ask that one. What a softball, JJ. Well, I know, but I thought I would just throw it out there. So, all right, Mark, one, now that we've established who you are and what you do, let's start with the why. And we do this on every episode, so we get to know our guests just a little bit better. So what is your why? What motivates you and what gets you up out of bed in the morning? Yeah, I, I love that question. And my answer to that is as straightforward as it is profound. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm really motivated by my faith in God. And so I begin every day with a devotional. And my approach to each day is, okay, God, where do you want me to go today? What do you want me to do today? Who do you want me to reach? And then Mm -hmm. throughout the day, moment by moment, I try to trust God and get going. In fact, that's my mantra. That's my why. That's my why. Mm -hmm. Trust God and get going. So, you know, after our first call, I called Rachel down to my office and I said, you know, if this guy's a real deal, we've hit gold. And, uh, you know, I, of course, only knew you through the introductory call. And uh, having worked with you now for quite some time, I can sincerely tell our listeners uh, that you are the real deal. Um, you know, a lot of people come to us with cliches and how you doing, buddies, and those things. But, you know, you really see it in the follow-up and the follow-through and the communications and the one-to-ones and, and just the investment that you have made uh, just personally, even in my life. How's the family? How are things going? It's not just the, the cliché. So I want to say uh, that, you know, to your why, it is substantiated by those who work with you. So, Uh, Congrats to you on that. And so, you know, Mark, obviously you co-founded Merchant McIntyre after your years of service that you explained to us in the federal government and and working closely in government relations. Um, But, you know, what inspired your decision and your vision for the firm? Because I'm going to tell you, it's not just us reaching out to a company to do work. You have a mission, you have a vision, you have values. And that's what really, Rachel and I spent a lot of time vetting companies that we could partner with who would represent us well in Washington. So talk to us a little bit about that as we have other listeners around the country, you know, who are maybe considering a relationship and and explain to them and to us what that vision is. Sure. So creating Merchant McIntyre along with Brent Merchant and now Katie Peterson, who is also a partner, was inspired by my faith. 
So our vision for Merchant McIntyre is to serve organizations that serve people by winning significant federal support for them because we know that God cares about feeding people, housing people, educating people, empowering people, healing people, just like rural hospitals do every day. So we, we at Merchant McIntyre are passionate about serving nonprofits, and we've really created over the years a collaborative, cohesive team who wake up every day with a vision of serving nonprofit institutions and organizations like rural hospitals. Last thing I'll say about this, JJ, is that Brent and Katie are essentially the perfect business partners because, man, they wake up every day and they work hard and they work smart and they make my job really, really easy. Yeah. I have not worked with Katie much, but, you know, Brent, he's just salt of the earth people. Mm -hmm. And he's from Michigan, I believe. Yes, he is. And in fact, Brent and Katie will be here uh, in Hillsdale in maybe a month or two. Really? And they will also be on the podcast because we'll have them here in the studio to no record way. an episode with us. Whereas... So Mark's not going to travel here, huh? That's okay. Um, I mean, I understand. Not on this trip. He's probably as writing speeches for some leaders somewhere. So that's, yeah. fine. He's, that's fine. He's got a lot to do, JJ. Yeah, he's got to write about the gases, prices. Right. All right. Well, that's great. <laughs> well, you know, I, I again, uh, I appreciate your passion and it certainly shines through in your business model. So let's talk about advocacy in general for rural hospitals for a second, because, you know, that's part of, you know, one of the many pieces of my role here at Hillsdale Hospital. But it's something JJ has been doing for his entire tenure here um, and has those some of those close relationships. Um, and but we also know in Washington, we have the National Rural Health Association that does an excellent job advocating for us. That said, Rural hospitals also need to be engaging in relationship building as individual organizations as well, because we do have the benefit of our shared voice mm -hmm. through NRHA. But to really make it real for lawmakers and agency leaders and those in Washington who have influence, they need to hear from many of us directly. And we need to have those one on one relationships with them as well. Um, so, Mark, from your perspective, for rural hospitals in particular, how important is government relations? And because we know resources have to be dedicated to that effort, mm -hmm. what makes that resource allocation really worth it to organizations like ours? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Rachel, that's a huge question. Uh, we mm -hmm. could devote we, we we could devote an entire podcast to this topic alone, right? And so maybe we no we ought to re no pressure. Yeah, exactly. Um, so let me start at the end and try to break this down. So if a rural hospital CEO wants to win major federal funding or influence federal legislation, then relationship building in the Congress and in the administration is essential. We at Merchant McIntyre Associates treat the federal government as the world's largest donor to nonprofits because, oh, by the way, that's exactly what it is. Uh, this mm -hmm. year, the federal government will spend over $6 trillion of our taxpayer money, billions, hundreds of billions of dollars will go to nonprofit institutions and organizations. And so we cultivate federal officials, federal decision makers as potential major donors, because that's what they are. And of course, what's the objective when you pursue a potential major donor, right? Significant return on investment. So that's really where we live. I want to say a little word about 
associations. My very first government relations client was an association. It was the National Groundwater Association. And literally, literally one groundwater contractor from Garden City, Kansas, named Doug Hinkle, stood up and he said, look, the federal hours of service regulations are unfair to our industry. These regulations are costing each of our small mom and pop businesses a lot of money every year, and there are no safety benefits. So Doug, on his own dime, traveled to Washington over the course of about 18 months. He educated members of Congress and their staff. He built relationships and actually achieved relief from these regulations for his industry. By the way, he did this over the very strong objections of no one other than the U.S. Department of Transportation. Okay, So one guy made a huge difference because he invested in building relationships with decision makers in Washington, D.C., and that was a huge lesson for me. Again, it was my very first government relations client, and it really taught me something from the very beginning. And obviously, any rural hospital leader could do the same thing in his or her category. Yeah, and, and uh, Rachel, just to follow up on that, so when I got the original solicitation letter, um, again, rarely do I open them, and then rarely do I follow up through because we get just a tremendous amount of those, but something caught my eye. It wasn't even any flashy paperwork because it's not. Mm-hmm. It was, it was, but it was concise and um, it just intrigued me. But, you know, one of the things I was thinking before I even reached out to him was like, yeah, right, like, like Hillsdale, Michigan like the most conservative place probably coined, you know, in the nation, (laughs) Uh, the Bible Belt of the West, whatever, you know, phraseology has been coined, Hillsdale College, you know, hometown. Um, I'm thinking to myself, there is no way in the world that that Congress, uh, especially with some of the partisan issues that we deal with, is going to be funded in Hillsdale. And the beauty of it is it's not J.J., it's the relationship that Mark and his team has with those folks on Capitol Hill. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's really important. And Mark, I think that you've leveraged your relationships, you know, where for me it may be a little too close because we're affiliated with, you know, this kind of strong community or this group or that, you know, affiliation. But what what Mark and his team bring to the table is that rich experience that is truly nonpartisan. So, you know, obviously, you know, Merchant McIntyre offers a wide variety of services to its clients, you know, but we really want to look specifically on the funding, you know, and policy work itself. So, you know, we want to talk about that funding piece and then we want to talk on policy work because both of those are important. Some play hand in hand. Um, So let's first start with funding. Uh, what are the various forms of funding available to rural hospitals through the federal government, and how are those sources uh, accessed? In other words, if you access them for you know, me, what are the windows? Is it, do I do all the work? Are you finding those? Can you talk a little bit about the funding aspect of it? Absolutely. So great question. And let me address the issue of division of labor. Uh, We know that you, Rachel, and every other rural hospital leader listening to this podcast, they already have at least one day job, right? And so so our our role at Merchant McIntyre is to serve as the federal funding staff for any rural hospital that retains us so that, of course, they don't have to do it. And, of course, typically a rural hospital 
while doing great work, lacks the internal capacity uh, to produce award-worthy federal grants. So there are two mm-hmm. basic there are two basic categories of federal dollars available to rural hospitals. The, the first category is competitive grants, and then the second category is what's called congressionally directed spending, also known as line item earmarks. So earmarks. Mm-hmm. yeah. So on the competitive grant side for rural rural health care, uh, there are dollars available for telehealth, substance abuse, prevention and treatment, behavioral health, chronic disease management, nurse training, workforce development, patient care navigation, quality improvement, and wellness programs. You name it, there's typically a federal grant to fund it. Now, having said that, when it comes to capital facilities and equipment, uh, those dollars at the federal level are the hardest to win. Yeah, yeah. So, so at Merchant McIntyre, we pursue congressionally directed spending or earmarks. And these are grants that are written into the federal appropriations bills each year by members of Congress and congressional staff. So in this year's appropriation cycle, for example, we're in the process of winning major funding for emergency department renovations, MRI machines, linear accelerators, Da Vinci robots, uh, expansion of rural health clinics. You get the idea. So primarily capital facilities and equipment, which are often not covered by com- competitive grants. So, you know, I've always been told that the evil world, the evil world that exists in Washington promotes these things that are detrimental mm-hmm. to our communities called earmarks. Pork. Pork. Barrel, pork barrel. So, Mark, talk to us a little bit about earmarks. Just, you know, because when we hear that word, sometimes we get the shivers, right? And sometimes you hear politicians running on the, the principles, I'm tired of earmarks going to places, but it is truly part of the process, right? It, it is. And again, this is a tremendous topic for an entire podcast. Okay. Yeah, I, know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I like, I like to say that line item earmarks are the most famous legislative device that no one knows anything about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We had a can yeah. we politicians love to demagogue this issue. We actually had a presidential candidate some years ago make the case that if you were to elect him, he would save the federal government $50 billion a year by eliminating earmarks. <laughs> okay? The correct answer is actually zero. And while, like with any topic, uh, JJ and Rachel, there are many levels of complexity to this, mm-hmm. it's very basic. It's very basic. And James Madison and our founding fathers decided this issue you know, over a century ago, right? Mm-hmm. So the Congress, under, our, under the U.S. Constitution, the Congress has the sole power of the federal purse, so they get to decide who spends the money. When the president sends his budget to the Congress, in the House and in the Senate, there are 12 appropriations chairmen and chairwomen They each get an allocation, and if they do earmarks, if they actually fund earmarks, that comes out of their existing allocation. Think of a pie, 
It comes out of their existing slice of the pie. So mm -hmm. if you're the chairman or the chairwoman of an appropriations subcommittee and you decide to do earmarks in your budget allocation, that does not add one penny to the federal budget. That helps us understand, and for those listening, that it can actually be a good thing to help support rural communities uh, in advocacy. So thank you very much for answering that. Well, and so here's my perspective on that, and I'll try not Please. to be too... Um, have too much of an attitude about it, but but you will. Here's my yeah, I will. So here's my thought: is listen, if that money's going somewhere, I'm going to make sure as much of it as possibly can comes to advocate, my community advocate, and my organization. Advocate. So regardless of you know politically or philosophically, someone has one opinion or another about earmarks. The reality is that's the vehicle available to us, so Agreed. we can either just ignore our community and not do anything or not even make an attempt to access some of that funding, or we can advocate for our community mm -hmm. and make sure that if it's going out, some of it comes here. Agree. All right. We can close So that's that. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so let's get a little bit into um, some, some policy work too, because you guys do assist with things like legislative strategy, policy analysis, and some direct advocacy. So what all does that entail? And what does it take to do that work effectively? I mean, you hear stories of people, whether they're as individuals or organizations who, you know, had a cause and directly lobbied and worked with and communicated with their legislators, whether it's at the state or the federal level, and, you know, were standing there in the room when a bill was signed or mm -hmm. um, was able to see something get passed that they had really championed. But what's the, how does that really work? What are the mechanics behind that? Because it sounds great when you hear it in a media interview later, or maybe in a, right. in a talk at a conference or something like that, but it's not as simple and straightforward. Is that right? Uh, excellent, excellent point, Rachel. You know, there's an old saying that there are two things you should never watch being made, right? Sausage and legislation. <laughs> and, so, and, and, and so that gets to the, that gets to the heart of what you're describing there. Politics drive policy and politics drive legislation. And again, there's another old saying that all politics are local. That's true. Mm -hmm. So it comes back. So it comes back to what we talked about earlier, the importance of building relationships in, in Washington, the way to move legislation, the way to affect policy is to build relationships in the Congress by educating both the congressional staff and the members of Congress about your rural health care objectives. And typically, typically, changing federal legislative uh, work or policy comes down to one of two objectives. It's either what do you want the federal government to start doing or what do you want the federal government to stop doing? Everything typically flows yeah, from one of those objectives. That is true. So the Congress, every year, um, obviously initiates and passes legislation. The administration, every year on a regular basis, initiates and passes regulations, right? And so if I'm a rural hospital leader and there's something that I want the government to start doing or to stop doing, what I need to do is not write a whole piece of legislation or not write an entire regulation, but go to my member of Congress, which really means the congressional staff, because understandably and respectfully, they're the ones who really do the work, and begin to educate the staff 
about your objective and ideally give them some language that describes the problem and how to solve it in legislation. And then this goes back to the cultivation of your major donors, right? Mm -hmm. You educate, you educate, you educate House and Senate, and you simply try to get a member of Congress to insert language into legislation that remedies the problem that you as a rural healthcare CEO has. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, it sounds easy, but that's in and of itself where the work is. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously it's a tremendous amount of relationship building. And so, you know, uh, let's just talk about then what it is that you have been doing for, let's just say, rural healthcare in in America since you've been doing this. And so, you know, I guess for our listeners, you know, you do have such a, a wide depth of experience and, 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 and really expertise that you bring. But, you know, what are you seeing right now as the most common issues that you're working on with your rural hospitals, in particular, those clients that are in rural America today? Yeah, exactly. So, so JJ, um, you know, our focus at Merchant McIntyre Associates, essentially 24-7, 365, is funding, okay? Mm-hmm. And so the most common issues that we're working on involve workforce development, behavioral health, mm-hmm. substance abuse, and telehealth. And we, we really view those issues through the filter of what federal dollars are available to address those needs in rural health care. The good news is that the Health Resources Services Administration recently announced eight new grant programs targeting these needs. And so applications for these grants are due this fall and winter. And given the size of these grant awards, winning any one of them could be a game changer for a rural hospital. Absolutely. And and let me follow up with that. So obviously, uh, stock market is looking a little rough lately. Um, we're hearing, you know, double digit inflation, potentially. We're hearing about bull market. We're hearing about you know, recession, and these things are not just forecasted, you know, months and months down the road, they're kind of upon us. So uh, all of those things impact rural America each and every day. They, they impact all Americans, but in particular rural. Um, so I guess my question to you as a follow-up is, I know what you've been working on, but what do you see coming down the pike uh, that rural hospitals need to pay attention to with all of these things changing around us in this environment? Well, again, great question. Um, but my reality, having lived and worked in D.C. for 37 years, um, again, looking through the filter of what's available in terms of federal funding, um, not a lot changes right from year to year, except, of course, we're coming out of a pandemic mm-hmm. where the federal government has invested an unprecedented amount of federal support particularly in the area of healthcare, and of course, within that, rural healthcare. So that's where really Merchant McIntyre Associates is focused now. Mm-hmm. And obviously, uh, that is ever-changing because the environment can change <laughs> overnight and priorities can shift. And, you know, I know that we've had this conversation before, but it's pretty alarming the number of hospitals, rural hospitals that have closed in America. What's your give me a little insight into that in in terms of, you know, what's your perspective uh, on how we can help those rural hospitals? So someone's listening today 
and they're saying, you know, we're we're really struggling. And what can what can you know your company do to help hospitals who are on that th- razor thin? <laughs> I mean, razor thin. Yeah. Uh, edge right yeah. now. Yeah. Thank you for asking that, because when I showed up in Washington, D.C. 37 years ago as a young Capitol Hill staffer, I assumed that the members of Congress were leaders, right, who knew everything about everything. Mm -hmm. Right. And the the reality is these folks uh, will run to the front of a riot and call it a parade. Mm -hmm. And what what I mean, what what, what I that's great. What I mean by that, what I mean by that is there has been a realization in Washington, D.C., on Capitol Hill, in the administration, that rural hospitals are often the economic engine in any community. Yep. They're often the largest employer in any community. And, and over the last decade, on average, one rural hospital closes on average every month. Yeah. Right. And so these federal decision makers finally have realized what I just shared. And that's why so much money is now being invested in helping rural hospitals throughout America. Because members of Congress realize, and I think this is part in part because of your association and then because of individual leaders like you all at Hillsdale Hospital, they're getting the message that rural hospitals are desperately needed where they are, and they may need some federal support to keep them there. Along those lines, I think COVID, you know, gave us an opportunity that we never wanted to have for this reason to Mm -hmm. really further that message Mm -hmm. because it was made abundantly clear, if it was not already, how important rural hospitals are. And when you recognize that 20 percent of Americans live in a rural community, Many of those communities mm-hmm. that don't have access to health care, um, you know, we're, we're talking about a serious problem if we don't find some long-term financial sustainability. And I think one of my concerns and, and one of the things JJ and I have discussed that I know we're going to be working on is making sure that we don't lose this opportunity when that has been demonstrated so clearly to affect some change here because, again— the long-term sustainability is, I think, um, one of the harder things to address um, in in advocacy efforts. Mm-hmm. And and I even think, you know, there may be folks listening to this in rural hospitals that are thinking, okay, well, grant money, that sounds good. But even with grant money, no. a lot of it's tied to programming. It so is. And a lot of it requires a match of some form. So it's not just free money. Or to demographics. Help, right, right. <laughs> it's not just free money to help your hospital stay afloat because, you know, you have way too many Medicare and Medicaid patients no. compared to others. And, we, you know, there is some funding tied to that as well. Mm-hmm. But none of these different measures have necessarily stopped the bleed because no. we've continued to see rural hospitals close. Um, so from your perspective, um, basically, how do we fix world hungry uh, in the sense of I'm asking <laughs> yeah. you a giant question of this is a huge problem. It's a systemic issue. It's a structural issue um, within, you know, the government and the way that this works and the way funding is designed and reimbursement is designed and all of these things. But what is the best way that rural hospitals can make sure that our legislators don't lose sight of this issue and that rural hospitals don't start to disappear again into the background. Yeah. 
I think this is where your association really comes into play, where 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 you know the association staff together with rural hospital CEOs around the country need to lean in lean, lean into their relationships yep. uh, with the congressional staff in the district, in the state, in Washington, and and identify a few key priorities and just. Uh, re, I, I like to say lather, rinse, repeat, right? <laughs> Identify mm-hmm. a, a few key priorities and just lather, rinse, repeat those messages so that whatever policies are needed, whatever legislation is needed, whatever regulation is needed or regulatory relief is needed uh, for rural hospitals, that some of those systemic issues that may be hurting rural health care are removed so that you all can survive and obviously thrive. And there's some great progress happening, Rachel. And, and to your there point, is. you know, it, it took, you know, a, a global pandemic to kind of heighten the awareness mm-hmm. of what is happening in rural America as it relates to health care. And so, you know, right now I can think of Senator Grassley uh, and some of the legislation that he has proposed that has been, you know, and, and remember the legislation that he proposed for the, the Small Rural Hospital Closure Act. That actually was pre-pandemic mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that this has been oh, yeah, going on. Been stuff yeah, out there. It's just been out there, and so I, I just want to, you know, to to highlight the fact that if you're listening to this podcast today, and to Mark's point and Rachel's, the most powerful relationship. Uh, that you can have is not with your county board of commissioners or the relationship you have with your board members. Those are important. But it's it's a relationship that you have with your congressional leaders. They are the ones who can help us and save rural health care in America, in my opinion. Uh, and there's a lot of good things that are happening. But, you know, it, it takes some organization. It takes collaboration. Uh, it takes behind the scenes work. And Hospitals like mine cannot do that alone. That's why we lean on experts like Mark uh, and his organization to come in. And I would encourage those listening today, if you're thinking about an opportunity in which your voice can be heard, and as much as we like to think we can fly to Washington and do that, you can't. It does not exist. You know, what is happening with Mark's company across the healthcare industry is powerful. So it's hard to believe you know, that we've been in our relationship for a while now, and you have been instrumental in our calls in really just driving me to think about it outside of the box, the different types of funding arrangements. And I, I just want to thank you, Mark, for not only doing that um, and, for, and for really pushing me and get me to think about this a little bit different, but also for what the work that you're doing that has, has a mission behind it in saving rule America. And I truly believe that. And I don't say that as some cliche or altruistic, like, oh, well, this, you are truly, when you can prop up a rural hospital that is the number one, you know, employer in that region, and and it is the economic engine, we are saving rural America, because so goes your local hospital, so goes your community. And so I want to thank you for the work and advocacy that you have done. Uh, on behalf of of healthcare, uh, I also want to thank you know Merchant McIntyre for your your just your efforts in connecting people with congressional leaders, people with policy advisors, 
people in healthcare, with funding agencies, because you are the conduit. You truly are, and I firmly believe that. So I want to thank you for that. And then most importantly, I want to thank you for joining us today on Rural Health Rising so that others can learn about uh, this opportunity that they can have uh, to be a voice uh, in Washington, to have someone there who is batting for them. I think it's very important. So, Mark, I want to thank you for uh, joining us today on Rural Health Rising and for your expertise uh, and for the time that you took today to share with our listeners. Absolutely, JJ and Rachel. And I want to uh, end on this encouraging note. Um, in my experience, most people, including rural healthcare leaders, when they view Washington, D.C., they view it as this impenetrable monolith. And the reality is, it's quite the opposite. It's highly permeable. Washington, D.C. operates like a small town, for better or for worse, everybody knows each other. And so folks who care about saving rural America folks who are rural healthcare leaders, if they're willing to invest the time and the energy, which is much more important than money, right? But if they're willing to invest the time and energy to cultivate relationships with congressional staff and members of Congress in their district, in their states, in D.C., and they're willing to persevere, right? Because perseverance is at the root of every achievement. Mm -hmm. Then I think that whatever progress has been made in the area of rural health care can continue and we can build from where we are today. Before we close, we'd like to do a fun segment with each of our guests. So we want to know, what is your most unique rural experience or one of your favorite memories that is unique to rural life? So if you will indulge me, I want to give you my worst experience in rural America and also my best. Please, okay? please. And I'll, be, and I'll be very brief. So my father uh, is a uh, child of the Great Depression. And so he believed that his sons uh, needed to develop a very strong work ethic. And so during our teenage years, uh, he had us work as migrants in the summer hmm. in upstate New York picking cherries and picking strawberries. Oh, yeah. Absolute backbreaking work oh, under yeah. the summer sun. Oh, yeah. uh, I'm, glad, I'm glad I did it, but only because once the pain ends, the nostalgia begins, oh, yeah. so to speak. <laughs> oh, yeah, right? absolutely. So, so that, that, was, that was not fun. Now, um, in my family, we have a very small cottage on a lake in south central Maine. Uh, it's a lake. It's got a long... Indian name, a long Abenaki name. It's Lake Kabasi Kanti. And this cottage is not fancy. Uh, in fact, we did not have flush toilets for some decades. And I visit there every summer in August. We have a screened in porch. I sleep out on the porch. Um, I see the most extraordinary uh, sunrises every morning. And during the night, I listen to the different calls of the common loon. Hmm. And Oh, my best rural experiences, hmm. wow. best rural America memories I've ever had. Wow. Sounds amazing. Well, once again, Mark, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you. Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll have another great conversation with another great guest. So be sure to tune in. 
And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others why they should listen too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising. And you can now find us on Twitter. I'm at Hillsdale CEO JJ. Rachel is at Rural Health Rach. And you can also follow the podcast at Rural Health Pod. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, and a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. Hosted by J.J. Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. Special thanks to today's guest, Mark McIntyre, principal and co-founder of Merchant McIntyre & Associates. For more episodes, interviews, and more information, visit ruralhealthrising.com.